I always say to, to male friends who might humph and haw about things, well, you know, you had a good a long time. Um, you know, you're just going to have to put up with this for a bit while we sort of take some limelight. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving, and sometimes reviving, as well as pivoting and riveting. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, class, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Catherine Neal, an experienced creative manager and producer who's been working in the creative arts, heritage and entertainment sector for over 30 years. One of her many skills is to bring teams together, conceiving and managing projects of all sizes. She's been a teacher, a film producer and worked in theatre, and she joins me now. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Susan. So I want to I want to go back in time. Oh yeah, and you're 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 you're, you're eighteen months old, and yeah. you're living up. You're living in Nairobi. That's right. Yes. I so am. so tell us what memories and what what stamp it left on your soul living in Nairobi at a very early age. I think I feel like it was an extraordinary place, and I wonder how much is my memory and how much is my constructed memory, but. Whichever it was, it certainly defined who I am today. I didn't realise that probably for about 27, 28 years. Um, but I've got it. And it's very photographic or, or cinematic. I sort of have sequences that I can play in my head or images that I can recreate at the drop of a hat. And for me, very much it was about the sound and the smell of the place. and. And so it felt like it was normal that you would have this hot, red, dry dust up your nose and you would go in the afternoon to the monkey orphanage. And But the thing that sat with me that, that didn't seem right was looking at people who were living on the street, children who were selling rhubarb, um, who didn't have clothes or things like that, who would try and sell a flower when we were in the park. and. Uh, what I remember is the confusion, the sort of not understanding why I was there in the sort of matching dress that my mum had made me that matched her dress, and they weren't. So you 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 were in Nairobi till you were four. Then you came to England, and that must have been a bit of a juxtaposition to go from this dry heat to kind of the cold, damp weather of the yeah. UK. It was extraordinary. And, I, and again, I can remember, I can, in fact, I can actually almost taste it. I do a lot in taste memory. But I, what I remember was it was snowing. So I came, uh, we, uh, the plane door opened and you, I stood at the top. And of course, I, I didn't have coats or things like that. You know, we just had what we had on, which we were wearing normally, a cardigan or something. But I remember the snow. And it's almost that, you know, that feeling when the snowdrop hits your tongue, that's the bit I remember is the snowdrop hitting my tongue. And I can remember coming down into this sort of white, 
I'd never seen anything like this beautiful white floor of the, of the runway of all this snow. Um, and then I can remember being taken to see relatives and, and it was all so foreign to me and all so different and, and fascinating. I was fascinated by it because it was like nothing I'd ever known. Very interesting. You went to boarding school uh, and, and what, what was that like being sent away at 11? Um, it was strange, really. I, I think at the time I just accepted it that I had to do that. My dad was in the RAF and, you know, they got sent somewhere where there was no English schools. Um, and so that was that, you know, I, I had to go. It wasn't a question of did I want to go. Um, I went as other girls did who were in the forces. Um, and it was it was a good experience in that it makes you grow up very quickly. You learn to do things like, you know, darn your socks quickly, wash them, um, ironing, um, all those things that you have to sort of work out, saving your 44 pence pocket money for, um, you know, a hair dye or a comb or a bag of monkey nuts. Um, <laughs> so it made, you, it made you quite thrifty and it made me very independent. The most exciting thing was when it came to the holidays and I had to go to Heathrow Airport on my own on the train. Um, and whether I was fortunate or not, I always looked older than I was. So I was able to, I probably shouldn't say this, I was able to zip into the first class lounges and, and have a glass of wine at 14. Um, <laughs> but I, clearly I shouldn't have. So where were you flying to at that age? I was only going to Belgium. Sometimes I went on the hovercraft. Um, but, you know, these days I would be like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly fly that short distance. I must go on, on the Eurotunnel. Um, so you but, went to Belgium because that's where your dad was, was That's stationed. where my dad was, yeah. That's where my dad was stationed, near Mons. Um, and uh, so I just flew there. But it, it, it felt quite exciting and glamorous at that age. So who who influenced you? Who did you look to for guidance as to choosing where your life's journey would take you? I think it was very much when I um, when I left boarding school, when I was 16, my parents came back over. My dad left the RAF and, and I, I left boarding school as I had to. And um, I went to a local sixth form college. And what I realise now is there weren't many sixth form colleges around. And the nearest one we had was in Henley-on-Thames, and Henley was a very smart, posh place. We were from the edge of Reading, which was quite different, um, but I managed to get in, and uh, the county allowed me to go on the bus, and so, you know, that that was all very good. And then I, I met... Um, I had an extraordinary group of teachers. I did history um, and history of art were my two favourite subjects, and I had wonderful history teachers, and wonderful history of art teachers but I also took Latin I wanted to do drama but the headmaster told me that I, that no I must go and do Latin I clearly had a bit of a brain I better do Latin and that I would like the Latin teacher which I did um a, a lovely gentleman called David Ferraro who was an extraordinary teacher and great scholar um and he really did because he he seemed to see something in me that I hadn't seen myself um and that really you know I felt noticed I suppose for the first time I, I was in the first piece of theatre I did the first plays um and suddenly I, I found a home I think I was looking for a home for a long time and I found this home upon the stage and, and he was absolutely instrumental in that. So when did you realise that you had a passion for words and writing and, and helping other writers? I think that came much that came much later. I was in my late twenties. I'd sort of moved through teaching. I'd been working in community theatre. I'd run away to Spain for a year, um, and I came back and somehow ended up um, 
going to um, work with a, somebody who decided he wanted to be a film producer. There was lots of um, uh, money around at the time for making films um, in, in terms of sort of tax breaks and things like that. Um, and I'd been doing theatre. I've been working with a friend I'd known since I was 16. We'd been working um, with various writers and theatre writers, and I enjoyed it. And then I sort of picked up a film script, and I said, well, can I take this and have a look at it? And I read it, and he said, what do you think? So I, I thought to myself, well, it's not that much different to kind of taking theatre scripts apart. Um, I'll read a bit about it and then, you know, give it a go. And and um, I just realised that I loved doing it, that I couldn't sit down and write myself, but give me a red pen I just could see. I could look, read the page, and I could see what was on that page instantly. You were like you're a natural editor, really. I mean, when I think of a red pen, I think of English teachers yes. crossing yes. things out and yes. putting comments in yeah. the margin. Yeah, that's how I feel like a natural editor, and I still feel like that now in the the current role I do. You know, I, I sort of go in and I'm like, no, no, yes, do that, cut that, move that, put that there. Yes, no, that's going to do it. Um, <laughs> like a it, jigsaw puzzle. It is like a jigsaw. I'm literally, I'll go in and the first thing i'm looking for are the corners um <laughs> oh yes when you do the jigsaw you do the corners first i used to love I, well, jigsaws. I, have to do, I do the corners but then i don't do the edges i do the corners but then oh the edges go do the edges yeah, yeah and, and, and do the group the clumps of colors yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i have to go that way that's a very good metaphor isn't it for life don't you think oh uh, yeah i think so and, and life is you kind of see that jigsaw my auntie said to me she must have just been over 60 or something and he said to me nothing really makes sense until you get over 60 she said and then it begins to make sense you begin to see how you got to where you are um and you put that jigsaw together and and as I sort of approached that I was 57 this year um I begin to kind of see, oh, okay, that's why I did that then, because now I'm doing this now. You know, this all begins to make sense. Do you think at the age of 60, you get to the point where you've kind of lived through you know, if you're fortunate to live to 80 or, you know, perhaps 90 and beyond, you've lived two thirds of your life and then you've got less left than you've already lived. And so it kind of focuses, how am I going to live the last decade or, or two of my life? And uh, if anything that kind of self made me self-censor or hold myself back I'm going to discard because I, I, I'm going to go for it. Do you think that's what it is? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think you don't care. I think that I found that when I had my daughter, Esme, I was 37. And after I'd had her, it was like I didn't have anything left to prove. It was like I'd done my best production. It was here in front well, of me. Well, that's nice. That's um, nice. Yeah. That, you know, that, that, that was it, really. And it was really interesting to watch her whole process. And now she's left home and starting her life independently of us, which is fascinating. I do. There's that wonderful poem, and I forget now who wrote it about wearing purple and big hats. That's exactly who I'm going to be at sixty. I I don't think I'll give a damn what anyone thinks. I wish I knew now. I know. I wish I knew then what I know now. And actually, it doesn't really matter what you look like. Nobody's really bothering that much about you when you go into a room. And and just to be able to, as I've got older, I've become far less self-conscious and far less 
I've become a nicer person because I'm, I don't, it's not that I'm indifferent to what people think of me. Obviously, I don't want people to be hostile and I don't want to be unkind. But I know when I was a younger woman, I was far too preoccupied with what people might think of me. You do lose that. And the other interesting thing that I found um, when I worked, must have been five or six years ago now, when I had a couple of younger women work, came to work in the small company with me. Uh, One was in their early 40s and one in their early 30s. And I learned so much from them in terms of they would say to me, we'd have meetings and they'd say, Catherine, you haven't got to put up with that, you know. Men can't treat people like that anymore. You know, you can't be spoken to like that. Um, and it was, I kind of, I envied them, their freedom and confidence in who they, they were and realised they'd had a very different experience of starting out in the world than I had. Um, but I took a lot from it. I kind of thought... I think that combined with this sort of getting older and going, oh, well, actually, blow that. Um, you know, get rid of that. Don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, really put me in the place where it's like, where you can almost just unattach an ego. There is no ego. Um, you know, I say in my jo- current job now, my job is to make myself dispensable because when I'm dispensable, I've done my job because I I have handed all over to you and you are thriving and growing and loving it. And I am just here facilitating. I want to talk to you about your current job. But before before we get on to that, I want to ask you a, a, a more generic question, which is probably a bit of a generalisation. But do you think, and I, I, I don't know the answer, so I'm interested in what you have to say about this. Do you think that men are more confident younger and we as older women catch up with the men. And by the time we catch up, we've kind of lost lots of opportunities because we weren't as confident as the men initially. Um, I think part of it for women of this sort of age that I'm in, in my late 50s and, and women in the early 60s, I think, yes, there was a sense that we might have been unconfident. We may have had confidence that we hid because we weren't expected to have that. You know, I can remember saying actually I'm at my best when I'm behind a strong man where I'm actually and I can remember saying that and feeling that and thinking Catherine 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 yeah but I remember I can remember thinking that and that for me that was the world I grew up in but that's not the world I'm in now and I would never you know, if anyone came to me and said that now, I'd be right. We've got to get rid of that. That's got to go. You know, obviously, I don't believe that now. Um, but for a long time, I always thought that it was my place to be behind. Do you think, oh, my gosh, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, I might have just got to just stop and talk about this because do you think that's a common experience amongst women that they that they hide their confidence, they hide their talents, they they don't want to overshadow their men? I, I I think it was. I don't know if it is. I don't feel like it is now. I feel like, you know, the younger generations of women, I would hope, I feel that and I would hope that they don't feel that. But um, certainly that is what I, you know, I remember, you know, I, it was like I had in my mind there were things that I couldn't do. There was a line to which I couldn't go beyond. You know, it's like if I thought about it, you know, 25 women in boardrooms. It never even occurred to me that a woman would ever get in a boardroom. There will have been women in boardrooms at that time, but not many. Um, And it was always my role to support and make whoever was my boss, you know, make their decision the best decision. Um, 
but not for it to be my, de- you know, even if it was my decision, I had to make it their decision. Uh, uh, well, another thing that's occurred to me, especially as you've got a daughter, and again, I'd really be interested in what you have to say about this. I have a sense, I don't know if this is right or not, but I have a sense that the younger generation, I mean, my son's a little bit older than your daughter, he's in his early 30s, that amongst his generation, sexual preferences are much more fluid. So, you know, his, his some of his friends have same-sex relationships and then they don't and then they do and they're kind of, they're just much more fluid in their the choice of partners. It, it, feel, it feels to me that the, the boundaries of the definition of sexuality amongst that generation are much, much more blurred than, say, in when I was growing up. Do, do you think, and again, I'm just positing this as a theory, that do you think that as sexual boundaries become blurred that the that that men because of the because uh, bear with me it's sort of slightly rambling i'll get there eventually that because of the fluid the fluidity fluidity of sexuality that they the younger generation aren't threatened by confidence so much whereas in my generation and certainly the generation before me and certainly the generation after me Men seem very threatened by confidence, and I never understand that. And if it's because a man's sexuality is threatened by a woman who is confident, whereas because women are having more same-sex relationships than they were before, it doesn't seem much of an issue. I think it depends where you are. I think it entirely depends where you are and what sort of social media you're in and... You know, that's are you rural? Are you town? What class you are? I think it feels to me like it's very different um, and and very dependent. I think one of the things that is very interesting about the fluidity of both gender um, and sexual preferences is that we are hopefully getting to a place where we are just people. You know, we're all people that that and that that's where we're heading towards and. So that sort of whole idea of, you know, to be a certain person, you know, or to be, you know, you have to um, fulfill certain ideals in terms of the way you look, the way you behave, the way you talk, the things you wear, you know, what you think. I, I hope that that's where we get. But I, my experience suggests to me that there is still a little bit of work to be done. So did you encounter much because you know you're in the creative space did you did you encounter much prejudice or discrimination as as you went through your career I think it was about and now I wonder if it was less about prejudice and more about where I thought I fitted it was interesting I um I love biographies I don't know why I think it's because I'm nosy um but I picked up um I had Sir Peter Hall's diaries from Oh goodness! I mean, it's a long, long time ago, and and I'd had them for years and read them and loved them when I first read them. You know, it was like this wonderful, fascinating world of theatre. Oh, I just wanted to be in it, but I read it now and I had to put it down because I was like, this is just all about men. It's about men writing, men directing, men acting, men designing, men doing the costume. It was just 
literally and I I couldn't read it I said I can't I said I, do you know I love this but I can't read it because it's not telling me you know it's just telling me the man's world I'm not and the women are there to be the lead actresses or the ingenues or the muses rapes m- murdered you know fornicated with and, and buried yes yes Given that you've been all your life a storyteller in the yes. theatre and, and film, do you think stories honour women enough? I don't think there's enough women's stories out there. I mean, I think, you know, and that's across that's across film, that's across literature, that's across art. Um, you know, that I mean, it, it's everywhere. Science, it's, it's just everywhere. Um, and I think, there's a lot of work to be done one in terms of uncovering what's gone before but also in terms of going forward making sure that we are telling women's stories and women's experiences and I know um you know I think I always say to to male friends who might hump and har about things well you know you had it good a long time um you know you're just going to have to put up with this for a bit while we sort of take some limelight and um, you know, we've been hanging on a long time here, um, and it, it, it's it's time we were heard. And I think, you know, I think it, it's difficult for. I wouldn't want to be a man over fifty, frankly. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't want to be a man over fifty. <laughs> Just a I think, bit, because I, 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 I think, um, you know, they're the, one of the things. If I sit with my girlfriends, we're like, oh, well, our husbands are men over fifty. You know, are they? They're sort of, you know. Are, are you know they they weren't natural feminists um some of them are m- much more feminist than than others they really try hard but they you know it feels like the world isn't geared towards them in the same way it was geared towards their fathers um and i'm sure that must disgruntle them at times um and uncertainly i think um you know one of the things that's happened you know we talk about um you know, sexism and whether something's sexist. And we we might have moved away a lot in the workplace in terms of actually that whole bottom pinching, clutching over the photocopier piece might have moved on substantially. But, you know, when we look at what now occurs through social media, no, dreadful. Um, yeah. it's absolutely horrific what the, the sort of, it's not even sexism. It's beyond that. The, the level of hatred of women that, that can come through there, I think, is and some of these influencers who are, who who are absolutely misogynistic and, and peddling yeah. this rubbish online. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, shocking. You said you wanted to be indispensable. Yes. Um, so if you if you could be indispensable, then what would you do with the with the next twenty thirty years looking ahead? Oh well, I could not work. That's the thing. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I love so I love working. What I love is being around people. So I'd have to be around people. I'd have to be doing so I'm at my happiest when I've got a project to do and people to work with. That's my happy place. Right. And 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 where do you think you're going to be in 5 to 10 years time? I'm hopefully will still be where I am at the moment. I hope that I'll still be um working at Castle running the visitor attraction. Um I love it. I absolutely love it. It brings together every element of my life so far. And I absolutely love it. I I love my team. Um, I love the people I work with. I love the work we do, what we provide for visitors, the wider educational work that we do. Um, I think it, it's it's tremendous. And I, I've, uh, I've still got a passion for history. I did history 
at A level and I've maintained that passion my entire life. So for me to work somewhere that has over a thousand years of history is extraordinary. This is Annick Castle you're talking That's about. That's right, yes, yeah. Well, I, I, you, I, I've definitely got to come and see you at Annick Castle. You have, yes, you need to do that. Thank you so much, Catherine Meal, for talking to me. I can definitely say that you have been there, done that. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you, Susan. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well. So please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?